Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about a critical topic, avoiding the number one reason for divorce, how to stay connected with your spouse and not drift apart. We are going to be talking about a number of issues, including what are the halachic obligations spouses have to each other? How does a relationship change over the course of a marriage? Are there differences in how to stay connected at the beginning of marriage, in the middle and later in life? And we'll also discuss what causes spouses to disconnect from each other. We have a number of wise, experienced guests joining us here today. We are going to start out with Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger, who is the rabbi of Congregation Beth Abraham in New Jersey. And then we will speak with Mrs. Chani Juravel, the popular lecturer and therapist. And then we will speak with Rabbi Shmuel Maybrook. He is a psychotherapist specializing in our topic of the day. He specializes in dating and marriage. And then we will culminate the interviews with Mrs. Sarah Yochevet Riegler, the best-selling author and the inspirational teacher. She also has been teaching for 10 years a workshop for women in improving their marriages. Then we'll have our wrap-up, takeaways, and lessons learned. And at the end of the show, we will unfortunately have reflections on the Levaya of Maoz ben Eitan Morel. His kfura was yesterday. Rabbi Neuberger and I attended and it was a very sad event, but it was also very inspiring. So we're going to talk about our thoughts, our reflections from that Levaya. So please listen in until the end. Background for today's topic, why talk about avoiding the number one reason for divorce? What inspired this topic? So in fact, I did see a divorce attorney talking about what brings on divorces. It was somebody interviewing him and asked him, why do people get divorced? And his response I found very interesting. And here's a clip of what he had to say. Why do you think that so many marriages are failing today? Yeah, I mean that's like the million dollar question, you know. And and I, I I try to base it on what I see sitting in front of me in my office because everything else is sort of theoretical speculation, right? Like there's so many people that can say, well, I think it's this and I think it's that. I'm basing it really on the data, you know, the people sitting across from me in that chair. Because, you know, by the time they're sitting in a divorce lawyer's office, like it's reached critical mass, you know, either they are ending it or their spouse has sent papers to them that they're ending it and now they have to come in and, and defend. But either way, they've reached that sort of critical tipping point. And I think the answer is, like everybody wants, I know what everybody wants. Like everybody wants an answer, like it's cheating or it's, uh, you know, financial impropriety or it's dishonesty. I, I think if I had to answer it, it's disconnection. You know, disconnection. Like we, we, we connect very abruptly when we fall in love sometimes. Like we fall fast. We fall in love fast. We feel connection fast. Like when someone says it was love at first sight, what they really mean is it was connection at first sight. Like I felt a connection to this person. But we don't disconnect all at once super fast. Like I, I think we disconnect like we go bankrupt very slowly and then all at once. Like it's just like a little raindrop, 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 and then there was the flood. And no single raindrop is responsible for the flood, but the flood is nothing but raindrops. So you can't say like, well, it's 
you know, it, it's the flood. Well, the floods made of raindrops. So what were those raindrops? And a lot of times those, in, in my observation, are little disconnections that lead to a dysfunctional symbiosis of sorts, like a, a dysfunctional pattern that leads to like a marriage killer. So basically his focus is on connection and disconnection. And when spouses become disconnected over time, that's what leads to divorce. I saw a related, it's not exactly the same, but a related concept in Forbes magazine. Forbes was actually uh, quoting a study that was done. It was published in Couple and Family Psychology. And there it talked about the most common reasons for divorce. And it said as follows that couples report many different reasons for ending a marital relationship, various reasons. But number one, number one, based on the study was lack of commitment. Lack of commitment is the most common reason for divorce. Marriage is not easy. I'm reading from Forbes magazine, but they didn't do the study. They were quoting at least this portion of the study from that magazine that I mentioned. And they says, say as follows. So success requires both spouses to be be dedicated to their union and serious about making it last. That's why it is not surprising that a lack of commitment could spell disaster for a couple. In fact, 75% of individuals and couples cited lack of commitment as the reason for their divorce. That was the most common cause of a marriage ending, exceeding even infidelity. So we have two somewhat related reasons. Number one is the lack of connection. That's more our focus today, but also that lack of commitment. That lack of commitment could be a result of lack of connection. It could be other things as well. In Parsha's Kisisa, at the way beginning of the Parsha, it talks about the Machatz. The half a shekel, whenever Klal Yisrael were counted, they were each to donate a machatzis a shekel. Many Meforshim explain they derive from the requirement of a machatzis a shekel, which was a half a shekel, that no Jew is complete unless he joins with others. In isolation, we are each only half of what we could be. We'll apply that to marriage in a little bit, talking about marriage, the two halves. But the two halves make up a whole. But when it comes to marriage, the whole is even greater than the parts. Just a little bit about Adar. We have Kurim coming upon us. Haman made a claim against Klal Yisrael. He called us, There is one nation. He's speaking to Ahasuerus as follows. There's one nation. They are scattered. They are divided. In fact, he promised to donate 10,000 silver talents. That's I'm going to donate that to you, to the national treasury in exchange for permission to wipe out Klal Yisrael. Now, interestingly, the Gemara Megillah tells us that roughly 1,000 years earlier, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had already ensured our salvation by commanding us to donate the Machatzis shekel. What's the connection? So it goes as follows. Even Haman acknowledged the importance of our unity in lobbying Ahasuerus to authorize the destruction of Klal Yisrael. In fact, Chazal reconstruct the dialogue between the two. It's a fascinating dialogue. The Gemara Megillah says as follows that Ahasuerus says, I'm concerned. I'm afraid to annihilate the Jews. Their God is going to punish me as he did all others who persecuted his people. Haman responds as follows, don't worry. Klal Yisrael today 
is too sinful to merit divine protection. But Ahasuerus is still concerned. He says as follows, But what about the merit of their sages? Chazal, the Chachamim, surely they haven't sinned. Haman again responds, Don't worry, Ahasuerus. The Jews are Am Echad. What does that mean that they are Am Echad? How is that a response? The Svasemes explains as follows. He explains why Haman of all people suddenly invoked the oneness of Kalal All Jews, they are responsible for one another. Kalal Raven That's what he tells him. He assured Achashverosh that even the sages, even the Chachamim, would be swept up in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's punishment of the masses. Why? Kalal Raven They are responsible also for the masses. The Al Sheikh Hakadosh adds on beautifully that Haman was subconsciously addressing Hakadosh Baruch Hu himself, insisting that his his nation wasn't worth saving. It's not worthwhile to save your nation. Why? For we're supposed to be, Klal Yisrael is supposed to be Am Echad. We're supposed to be one nation. But instead, what were we? Am Echad. But Mifuzar Umiforad Bein Ha'amim. We are scattered and we are divided. That was the claim against Klal Yisrael. There's no reason to save them. If they are disunited, if they're disconnected from one another, there's no reason to save them. And accordingly, that's why Esther instructs Mordechai, Lech, Knos, Eskol, Hayudim, bring Klal Yisrael together, go gather all Jews, reuniting us as one nation with one heart in the merit of that unity we would be saved. And in fact, we see here that it was the power of the Machatzisa Shekel. A half and a half equals a whole. That's Klal Yisrael. We are Am, am Echad. And the claim of Mefuzar Mefora Bein Amim, what's the antidote for that? Lech, Knos, as Kola Yudim, come together, unite, be connected together. That is where we will overcome. And we're going to discuss that in the context of marriage today. Coming together, unity, connection. And the fundamental question that we have to address is how do we bring those parts together? How do we bring those parts together at the beginning of the marriage, in the middle of the marriage, throughout the marriage to have connection and ensure that we do not disconnect as could so naturally occur without our actively keeping the parts together? Before we hear from our guests on this critical topic, let's hear the riddle of the week. This week's riddle is from Parshas Kisisa. After the Chaita Egel, Moshe Rabbeinu breaks the Luchas and he approaches HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is in Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Lamed Aleph. It says as follows, Moshe Rabbeinu went to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and he says, Anna! Truth be told, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, Kalal Yishol sinned in a big way. And the question is as follows. How is that helping the situation? Going to Kaddish Baruch and saying, yes, Kalal Yishol really blew it. He's supposed to go to Kaddish Baruch and say, please have mercy on Kalal Yishol. And this seems to be the exact opposite. And we can have an additional gloss on this. Maybe this is a Yesod in Shalom Bayis as well. So maybe let's get an answer that responds to both of that. What is Moshe Rabbeinu accomplishing here? And how can that assist possibly in Shalom Bayis?
If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. And now, let's go and hear from our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger. Rabbi Neuberger is the rabbi of Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a position he has held since 1990, and he is also a Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz. Rabbi Neuberger, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. And uh, Yeshikoch for all the issues that you discuss and how you bring it to people's appreciation and the depth in which you uh, analyze ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Neuberger. It's great to have you. We are talking today about marriage. I read a survey that the number one reason for divorce is couples growing apart. And accordingly, I wanted to delve into that topic. So if we could start first with halachic issues, and then maybe we'll branch out from there. So why don't we start with the halachic obligations a husband has to his wife? What are they, and uh, how do we fulfill them? The obligations uh, span uh, both uh, financial and uh, psychological. The uh, husband's obligation is to support his wife, and he's obligated to be to be respectful. We, the, the, the obligations come from the chumash, shereksus ba'ona. Shereksus are different forms of support, according to most opinions. Ona is intimacy. We can discuss intimacy as being a much broader idea than uh, physical intimacy. And then there are, if anything is left to doubt, the ksuva creates contractual obligations. And once again, Chassan says, Eizen v'afarnis, that he will support his wife. V'afalachim means he'll work. It means he'll live a productive life. And that he will respect his wife. So the, those are one set of obligations. Ono is another set of obligations. There's the mitzvah of Avas Reyim, which certainly becomes even stronger and, and more pronounced within the, uh, within the marital uh, relationship. Okay, so we have, we have Doraisa, we have Ram Torah, we have also rabbinic in nature, we have contractual, that's the Durabanans, right. I assume, and uh, we have a lot of obligations then, right. financial, the non-financial Rambam, relationship. And the Rambam, that uh, a husband has to be mechabed his wife, it says, has to love his wife, kigufoy ve'ova yosve, u'mechabde yosve has to take care of her properly, Israel, has to speak in a, in a refined way. Those are the obligations. Uh-huh, very good. So I want to get back to this in a little bit. Why don't we go to the halachic obligations a wife has to her husband? She's not signing the ksuba, so she right. doesn't have all those obligations. Right. It seems like it's much more limited. Well, actually, maybe not. I mean, there is certainly in, in ksuba a whole list of obligations. But if you can walk us through what are the halachic obligations, and then practically speaking, what happens today that we're not sewing and doing that type of stuff? So a woman's obligations are to help the husband be kind of the of Peru. And the um, woman's obligations are to to make sure to provide a an atmosphere that her husband can fulfill all of his uh, goals with respect to his obligations towards the Rebbeinu Shalom. 
and the woman's obligations are to create a, an ambience, an atmosphere in which the children grow to become Yerusha uh, Ma'am, and also go to, to fulfill their potential as Odisha. Mm-hmm. And, and tangibly speaking, that is whatever is necessary to fulfill those obligations. I don't know if that's a very, whatever is necessary, I'm not sure, but just that there was a what is uh, normally accepted. Uh-huh. Okay, so let, let's get back to Ona. Let's not specific, spe- yeah. talk specifically about Ona, but other than Ona, is there an obligation to spend time together? You know, there's always a talk of going on date night or doing this or doing that together, having activities together. Is there an obligation to work on having a strong connection to your spouse? So are those additional obligations or does simply who that we would be obligated in those areas? So the mitzvah of Ona technically is, is the mitzvah of intimacy. However, there are strong sources. The Gemara indicates that the mitzvah of Ona expands to be uh, spending time, to have private time with one's wife. Um, the Gemara speaks about the, that it's in, in, inappropriate for someone to... Um, for someone to be... Uh, to diminish the ability of a couple to be together privately... A third party. A third party, right. So that's so that indicates to us, and this is quoted extensively by Ben Rotam, Chassam Soifer, Mishnah Bar also quotes this. So that indicates that there is an obligation of husband and wife spending private time together. I remember Shefter pointing out, quote his father, that the word owner means time. Right? So owner in the, in the Swarm usually refers to uh, comfort. The, the, the opposite of owner is to make somebody uncomfortable and hurt somebody. Owner is creating comfort and happiness. But if Shefter's point is that there is a basic obligation of, of time, spending time with his wife. When husband and wife are permissible to each other, so then time becomes spending time intimately. When husband and wife are not obligated to each other, so then that uh, obligation becomes solely spending time together in private time. And, and then, in my understanding, the mitzvah of owner creates the model for how we spend time together. We spend time together by um, sharing ideas that we only share together, spend time together by the husband being responsive to his wife, how much time, date nights, the mitzvah of owners to be responsive to one's wife's needs. So whatever one's wife's needs are, sometimes they'll be spending significant time together, um, and that's the idea of a date night, and the, the mitzvah of owner is to provide for one's wife that she should be comfortable and happy. In fact, the Gemara refers to owner as simchas owner. And um, so all of these things are, uh, the way I understand it, the owner is described in halacha as a, as a responsibility, as a shibun. So the way I understand it, that's a model that husbands and wives are, obli- are, are responsible. There's an afrayas that we have. We have an afrayas to make sure our wives are comfortable and, and spending time with our wives. In other words, it's not just spending limited time for the owner itself, but it's spending time together and also building a connection between the two. Would we, would we extrapolate from that, that it's having a relationship outside of the owner obligation? So, so I would think that that is, uh, is almost self-understood. The way I understand it is that the, the mitzvah of owner is... Is described is, is described by Chazal. Chazal elaborated on it as a mitzvah that is within a relationship. Now, the mitzvah of owner can only take place when husbands and wives are are providing for each other in a in a good temperament and, and a happy situation. If God forbid the relationship between husband and wife uh, is not in a good place at any given time, then one cannot take the next step and 
fulfill the mitzvah of Ona. So the mitzvah of Ona was predicated on a strong relationship, and the mitzvah of Ona describes how one develops a good relationship, because the mitzvah of Ona is providing for each other. The mitzvah of Ona is when one is, even though one is being nana, one is providing hanah for one's wife. And, and, and part of the mitzvah of Ona is to learn how one can provide hanah for one's wife. So I understand that Ona is being the vehicle by which the Rebbe Shalom explained to us how relationships to look. So we have a lot of work in advance. We have to create a framework, we have to create a connection, we have to create a relationship, and that has to be ongoing in order to enable the mitzvah of Ona. Right. One of the concerns that we see that many of the the Swarm point that I discussed this is that uh, culturally, I think um, Shraga Nubiger wrote a very beautiful safer for Hassan and for, uh, for husbands and wives. Wait, related? Uh, not related. Not related. Unfortunately, not the Levim or Yisraelim. Um, but he wrote a, he wrote a safer that described that in which he's working very hard to explain the different Lashonas of the Rambam. Very, very with great precision. And when he sent me that safer, he also sent me the safer that he has uh, advice for for Hassanim and for uh, and for husbands. And he points out that culturally, we have this. We think that that a relationship is is love, romance, and happens. And there's electricity, and then that carries things. And that cultural idea, which is there's an emiss to it, and, and, it's, and when it happens, it's fantastic. But that sometimes uh, doesn't carry the idea that there's also an avoda to maintain a relation, to develop a relationship. So our Chazal are teaching us that in addition to a romantic relationship, there has to be a lot of investment, mm-hmm. and effort, and, uh, and this bodiness. Very good. So, uh, mentioning that safer, uh, let's take a step back then. What's your advice to couples? Let's talk about in advance of marriage, because I know in the shul you have a number of people, young, that come to you for eights, and all your tamidim, hundreds and actually thousands over the years. So, what's your advice to couples in advance of marriage on how to maintain a strong relationship? A strong marriage, how are you going to do it? How should you go about it? What are the eights or eights that you give them? So, when, when the young men come and ask for what are the important ingredients... So the first thing is working in one's midos. That uh, I think the Vilna Gaon writes that life is working on one's midos. And he said, he isn't able to work in his midos. So the, the most important ingredient is the ongoing work that a husband does to make himself a better person, a more giving person, a, uh, a person who is, has greater humility, a person who is a greater vatran. That's the most important thing. And that's an ongoing avodah. To be a person who is becomes more and more of a selfless person, and ultimately, when that becomes his greatest way of serving the Rebbeinu Shalom, so it's all one long trajectory. And so much of marriage is enjoying being a nice So much of being in love is enjoying being a nice and become more and more of a nice. So, and um, so those are, to me that's the that's where the avod is. The avod is and his bonus of working on oneself. And then obviously, understanding one's wife, understanding that husbands, that men and women are different, is a beautiful maharal, beginning of gracious, that says that when the Kodesh Baruch Hu, he explains the difference between the, the father-child, the mother-child, and the husband-wife relationship. That the, the father-child, the, um, the mother-child relationship, there's no, it's, it's not a relationship which by nature there's any tension to it at all. It's natural. They come from the same backgrounds, have similar goals. Husband and wife, by very nature, 
are Azer Kenegda. So that means that they come with differences. They come with differences that complete each other and that challenge each other to become better people. And the and in in Zoha when you when you zocha when you've worked hard and because Baruch helps you out, you see how to So then the relationship becomes this uh, beautiful binion that each part complements each other. Oh, very nice. So in advance of marriage, work on your midos and understanding that there are differences between men and wife. How do you work on your midos? How do you do that? So I, I, in, in the context of marriage, it is uh, becoming a, a more giving person. So giving, just doing it. And Whether you want to do it or not, give, 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 and, and it'll have an impact. I think so, yeah. And reminding oneself that uh, loves people who are able to absorb and able to swallow and, uh, and, and, and see themselves as not needing the, uh, often the approbation, the COVID of, of others. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Now, in your experience, we've been talking about in advance of marriage and the advice to give men or women would be the same advice, uh, how to have a successful marriage. Now that you're in the marriage, would the advice be the same or is there additional advice? Obviously, always work on your meetups. Always understand that there's a difference between men and women and be mevater. But during the wedding, during the marriage, people come to you and say, things aren't going great, or maybe things are going okay, but we want to improve. What are eitzas that you can give? That may be too subjective based on the couple, but uh, what are some things that come to mind that would be effective in maintaining, creating, and building a strong relationship between existing spouses? So we, when we put our tool in the morning, we begin very restlessly with So we start, then we have a relationship. We commit ourselves to each other, and... We are going to make the best of this relationship. And that's in a, in a very positive way. And then, a husband uh, has to invest himself. The Raman writes, if you think, that the husband has an obligation to create a upbeat and cheerful environment, environment in the home. So, the, so that's part of the avoda is to be able to train oneself to look at things by and tov, to look at one situation, one's wife, Ba'ayim Tov, to be able to see the positive, to see how one's, uh, how one's family situation enhances oneself and, and uh, one's ability to serve the Rebbe and Shalom. So, the, the creating an Ayim Tov, investing oneself, understanding one's wife, understanding that one's wife has different kinds of needs, what the needs are, that's the ongoing of order. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's spelled out in the Rambam. Can't get a better source than that. <laughs> uh, one last question for you. People come to you, I'm sure, with Shalom Ba'ayim issues. And they say, we have this issue, we have that issue. What can we learn from your experiences? What are maybe typical complaints that spouses have about each other? And what are ways to address those complaints? So let's come back to what you began with, and that is people who are sort of growing apart. So I think that's, that is part of people becoming sort of busy and distracted. And, and there's reasons for it, because the person wants to provide for one's family and often creates a tremendous investment. And often along the way, one picks up either hobbies or things that distract oneself you know, are very self-focused rather than focused on the family. So one has to make the effort that, uh, to, to invest time with one's wife and uh, to invest in removing some of the distractions, having more bitach and Yisrochah will take care of things and try and, and it requires this willingness, self-reflection, self-introspection. But uh, the but that's part of our when we get married. So we are committing ourselves to investing in a relationship. When we discussed before about uh, distractions, so and business being a distracting thing. So one of the sources of of um, 
husband and wife growing apart is they don't share what's going on in their lives. And that creates separate lives. And very often, husbands and wives will, will think that because my wife really doesn't really know what's going on in my business world, and she's not, not interested in what's going on in my business world, and or the, or the, uh, the rough things, I'm not going to share the details of my share with my wife. She's not interested in, the, in my cash, and my, I figured around today. So why share these things? And that is, and the same thing, a wife sometimes will see their husband's not interested in the, the drama that goes on in one's wife's life. So that's, that is, that's something that we have to, we, we can't fix up. Husband should be engaged by the drama that goes on in his wife's life. Um, a, a husband should, should be able to find one of the interesting parts of one's wife's, whether it's a professional life or whatever she's doing, and whatever it is, and, and has to develop, even if at first blush these don't excite him, he has to develop patience and understanding and a, and a deep appreciation and being able by and tov to see how these things are really important and, and, and attach himself to them. And when he thinks about his work, so even if his wife is not so interested by some of the ins and outs of his daily, whether it's legal, whether it's business, financial, whether it's how to venture around them, but there are parts of, of his life which she certainly is interested in. It could be the excitement that he had in entering around them. It could be the interaction with the Talmud, maybe not the Ktsois, but how he saw the light go on in his in the, in the, in the Talmud's eyes. It could be the upsetness that he had because something wasn't going so well. So that one can find, one should be able to find different parts of one's work day, work day that will interest his wife. And it's so important that if we're spending hours doing different things separately, that then we spend time where we acquaint each other with what's going on in our lives. So... There are ways in which our, the things that could distract us, we should be able to find ways in which they should be able to bring us together. Commonality and bring it home. Don't, yeah. don't have two separate lives. Right. My life outside the home and my life inside the home. Try to build both of those lives together. So what, what you're saying, if I heard correctly, is it could be the job itself that could be a distraction or extracurricular activities both, that could be both. both. both, both. So both. anything that gets you out of the house or maybe in the house, doesn't matter, but too focused on external things, that's going to distract you. And some of it is necessary and that's part of life. And some things are unnecessary and shouldn't be part of life. And if it's distracting too much, that's going to take us away from the core values and the core relationships that we have in the household. I think so. Okay, very good. Additional advice that you may have for our uh, listeners on the relationships. How not to drift away. A lot of it has to do with, with, with B'nai Torah, is being focused on the core, our core ambitions, our core aspirations. And our core ambitions and aspirations are to have a home of Obdei Hashem, to have a home that uh, where Kishbarach is comfortable, to have children who are Obdei Hashem. The, um, there's a Gemara that Rab noticed some that Rav had some unpleasantness in his marriage. We're not sure exactly what it was. So when Rav noticed, but took note of that, so Rav Chiyah said that she's So when we learn that, we think that's like a loveless relationship. She raises my children, and I don't do marriage because I don't see it that way. I see what Rav Chiyah is saying is that the, the top things of my life, the most important things in my life, are Megadelis Bonai and those are the core issues so my wife is helping me with the, the, the most important things that are going on in my life and because of that he loves his wife very very much so Rebchia is teaching us that there are many things going on in life and, are, and 
when we look at what are our top priorities of life, if we are able to focus that our top priorities becoming better then we can appreciate how our how our wives are helping us become better and that is a source of great Ab. Very beautiful shot. Rabbi Neuberger, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Joining us now is Mrs. Khani Juravel. Mrs. Juravel is a well-known therapist in Rockland County, New York, and is a popular lecturer worldwide. She's been treating individuals and couples in person and now virtually for three decades. She is also the author of the popular book, Sphera in Our Lives, a Relationship Manual, which is published by Feldheim. Mrs. Juravel, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, as always. We are talking about connection, connection between spouses. So why don't we start with the most fundamental question, and it relates to what you do day in, day out. Is it common that someone comes to you and says, I don't feel a connection to my spouse, I don't feel a connection, or maybe they say, I have nothing in common, it can go either way. And if so, what causes that? First of all, yes, it's very common. And I, I think all marriages have, you know, ups and downs and dips and so um, it's it's not a cause for, you know, thinking it's a train wreck, but it's it's definitely, you know, within the norm and happens all the time. I think there's a lot of causes, you know, there's never one size fits all. Now, obviously, if we don't invest the time in each other, um, I think sometimes one spouse is changing in certain ways spiritually or in terms of their um, interest or what they gravitate to and feel like they're growing out of or away from another spouse. Could be that they've never learned the familiar, you know, to be familiar with each other's languages of, of what sort of time or what sort of investments in showing love would mean the most. And, uh, you know, each of them could be doing what, you know, what they consider to be loving, but it may not be registering, you know, with the other partner. One may be getting them a lot of gifts while the other one's really waiting for just time together. You know, so it, there's so many variables. And um, I, I think the the two bigger themes that, that could be are, um, number one, I think, comparison. You know, there's so much out there, you know, just in terms of our small little worlds of seeing other couples and, you know, having our antenna up for are they happier or, you know, they seem to have it together in a way that I'm I'm wishing for. Um, or it, it could be that, you know, sometimes if if we have our own stuff, you know, that that we're working through and maybe it's not even something we're aware of yet, but we're, if we're personally not in a good place, um, and connected to ourselves very often, you know, we, we may not be connecting to others and, and that might not be about them. You know, oh, that's so, interesting. number one, if we're comparing ourselves to others, we're starting to lack our connection. We're saying they're better and we feel we're lacking. Is that, yeah, is that- you know, I, I, I think so. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, we see in, in one of the Sheva Brachos, right? We we wish the Chasim Kala to be right? To be like Adam and Chava, you know? And, and they were the only couple historically that couldn't have ever said, I, I should wish I married someone else, you know? So sometimes just, you know, seeing what's out there and, it, and it's natural to see others and, you know, and, and it's a healthy thing to aspire and, and use other people as models. And, and that's how jealousy could spur good things. But sometimes it could just get us down and think that our connection is not as deep or, you know, as, as good as theirs. 
Um, and that could also be part of my own stuff, right? It may not be about a spouse. It may not, it may be about working through individual things. Now there's a, a beautiful book by Edith Eva Ager called The Choice, very famous book, beautiful book. And um, she's an, a 90 something year old therapist in California. And she went through the war as a child. And she said that the one lesson, very similar to Viktor Frankl, who ended up becoming a mentor to her, one lesson that she gained was realizing that everything in life, um, you know, as much as things could happen to us that are so much out of our control, we always have the choice of what to make it mean to us. And she vowed to herself, you know, in the war, and this is what got her, you know, out, just keeping her sanity, was that, um, you know, I have to focus on on the meaning that I give it and who I still want to be. She ends up getting married and years down the road, um, she's very unhappy and she feels like she needs to get a divorce. And he's a lovely guy. You know, she just starts feeling bored and, and maybe this isn't enough. And she says, wait a minute, she did get divorced. And then she says, I'm such a hypocrite. Here I was really preaching to myself and others that, you know, I could be my own source of of happiness. And here I am, I'm, I'm blaming it on someone else. So to prove that I'm still who I want to be, she remarries him and ends up, you know, becoming a therapist, realizing that she just needed self-fulfillment and, and he wasn't the problem. I'm not saying that there aren't divorces that have to be. That's pretty much, that's simplifying it. Usually it, it does mean that there's work on both sides, but it, it's a dramatic illustration of sometimes my own, you know, discontent projecting outwardly, you know, when, when I'm hard on myself, it could be, I'll, I'll be really hard on others that day. If I'm not feeling like I'm enough, they might not seem that way either. It's, it, there, there's so many layers, you know, right. you have to, you have to get to the bottom of what's causing the disconnect, the disconnection between the two. Yeah. To be real about the feelings and, and then really track the, the thoughts behind them and, you know, and, and evaluate whether or not they're accurate or, you know, maybe fused in some way to, uh, you know, the, to something deeper. What if somebody comes to you and says, I have nothing to talk about with my husband or husband says, I have nothing to talk about with my wife. Is that the same as being disconnected? Is there something else going on there? Should it be of concern that spouses don't have what to discuss? And it could be in particular after the children grow up a little bit and uh, your entertainment has left the house, your constant entertainment for good or for bad has left the house. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's less to discuss at that point. So is that a matter yeah. of disconnection or is that something else going on? I'm not sure if disconnect or lack of communication and you know which comes first, but I think they're definitely correlated. Um, just to, to show the significance and, you know, why the work in, in putting, putting the work into communication is so critical. Now, Rav Kersner's Zetzal says, um, says when, when we find in Bracious that Adam and Chava are, are intimate, says Vayeda Adam, that Adam knows his wife, right? The word used for, for the, the closest level of intimacy is Vayeda. And Rabbi Kersner says so beautifully, he says that there's a connection. You know, we always could make a Gzeira Shada between words used in different contexts, the same word used in different contexts. He said later on in, when we, when we cry out to God in, in Mitzrayim in Egypt, it says that Hashem's reaction is Vayeda Elokin. Hashem knows. And he says we learn from there that as much as Hashem knows all, 
but it's only when we communicate that we fully get to know someone. So intimacy, ava comes miyadiya, you know, that that if we don't really spend the time talking and, and sharing thoughts, and that, that's the key to being able to, to really feel that, that you know the person, that you're there, that you're supportive and supporting, being supported. So that, that connection, when communication's not there, it, it really, you know, it would make the relationship limp. You know, it's, I, it's hard to keep going. And talking about lack of uh, communication, just along the same lines, I, I often wonder the impact of social media on marriages. And this could come in different forms. It could be that social media, you're seeing comparisons constantly. They're on vacation at a beautiful place and and they look, uh, they're dressed so beautifully and we're not, or whatever the comparison is you have on social media. Or it could be in a different direction of it's a distraction. And my husband is on his phone and he's constantly with other people and uh, it's a distraction from me. And I don't feel like I am a priority. His priority is elsewhere. So have you have people come to you and say social media, technology, phones, my husband is addicted or my wife is addicted and it's really distracting and impinging on our marriage? Yeah, I I think you're making such such important points. You know, I I think that if we had to encapsulate what kina, taiva and kavod look like, you know, jealousy and and desiring and and seeking status, I I think we could just say Instagram. (laughs) You know, there's so much in terms of comparison of following people's lives and as much as we could know intellectually that it's an illusion, um, it is really tough. I, I had a young woman who was so distraught and and she had she knew her husband was a good guy, but she was always just feeling that he wasn't measuring up. And um, at one point he planned this beautiful, beautiful dinner for her. And uh, it really fulfilled all of all of her checklist wishes. She was still unhappy because she said he didn't have it documented, you know, and photographed to put on her Instagram page. And and that was sort of like it didn't happen, you know, and 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 that was so real to her, you know, the need to to share and be seen and compare herself to others. So it's definitely tough in terms of the contrast and comparison and the fact that it, it's illusory. You know, I can't compare in real life to what people are doctoring themselves up to look like. That's one piece. But I, I think there's another piece. And what you said about distraction and, you know, it's 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 a time sp- spender and waster and it takes me away from real relationships and connections. I think there's something else. And I heard this a number of years back from Rabbi Elephant, and I thought it was so brilliant that he said that he's finding in young couples, you know, and he's so involved in so many of his students and their marriages, he he, he has such strong connections. He said that he feels that because people are used to all the wow news and, and the exciting ways that things are presented on WhatsApp, chats and, 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 you know, in the media, that it's hard to feel that we're interesting enough in sharing just regular stuff, you know, and, and we may be gravitating to what's so captivating that we lose that beauty in just sharing a regular day, you know, and, and regular goings on. And I thought that was a really beautiful point. So, um, we're, you know, if, if you're always used to that, that, overstimulating share, you know, so sharing the, yeah, I went to the grocery and, you know, I have this problem going on with my boss, you know, that that may seem tedious and not enough to capture somebody else's interest. It's something to think about too. You're not glitzy enough to communicate or to 
Or, yeah, you're not as so your value. to me. I'm just not, yeah. val- you're not valuable, or uh, it could be I'm not valuable because I don't have that glitz and entertainment. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Terrible, is this enough? terrible. Yeah, well, and, but it's it's real, you know, is is remember being in school and, you know, kids sharing what they did on their vacation. And after you heard, you know, the, the exotic stuff, it's hard to share that you just went bowling to, and to ice cream. Right. So, you know, if, if it, it's, it's definitely human. So I, I think it's just regaining the sense that just knowing you, you know, is so valuable. I, I heard from a woman I was working with, she says, I'm, I'm craving intimacy into me. See, I want someone to just know me. You know, so the beauty of of learning another person, you know, and as long as we're married and as much as we could think we're going through the same things and I don't have to ask and I don't have to tell because we get each other. Two people living the same lives never see it the same way and experience it the same way. So there's always a need to just know who we are and and what's going on for us. Right, right. Talking about disconnection, is this a concern that people could have at any time in a marriage or is it going to be more prominent later on? Is there a certain age that this concern kicks in? Is there an inflection point in marriage? Like I mentioned before, when the kids move out, you've married them off when maybe they become teenagers and there's less constant interaction between the parents and the kids. Or is this something that can come in different forms, shapes and sizes at any point during a marriage? Really no one answer. I, I think that the answer is is really sort of given to us in, in the bracha and the blessing that we start out with in marriage. You know, when, when people wish a couple to be bona bias ne'eman, right? That they should be, you know, building uh, a faithful, good home and, and a good connection. So the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe asks why it says bona. Why do you wish them to be building? Why not wish them to have the house, right? So he says perfectly, he says, because the relationship of marriage is always, it always has to be in the building phase. That at every stage, you know, we've got to make it a priority. So I think, you know, young couples could be way too busy with their kids and, you know, not make time for really being there with each other. And as you get older, yeah, like you said, your distractions are gone and and your focus has to be on each other. And and that might be difficult. So I I think that, um, I think it's, it's always, you know, I, I had, and, and when I was saying about assumptions and thinking that we don't have the need to put in the work, I had a couple that I was working with years ago, and I'll you know, change the details enough that they won't recognize themselves in the story. But um, they, they, they felt that marriage was just tired, and, uh, and, and they weren't sure that it was worth continuing. And she says, I don't know how much you could give us, because we know each other, you know, and, and we're not going to learn anything new. And she was sharing something very important to her. And, uh, and he, he was you know, sort of looking down into his lap and she says, you see, that's the husband that I can't live with. She says, like, he doesn't listen to me. He doesn't tune in. Look at that look. That look shows you what I'm living with. And I looked at him and I, I didn't know what the look necessarily meant. And, uh, what's with the look? What, what does that look mean? And he said, I, I don't know what she wants from me. This is how I look at business meetings when I'm, when I'm thinking, when I'm absorbing, when I'm reflecting. I was really hearing her. That is my look of concentration. And she says, really? And he said, you never asked me. You're just always blasting me and I'm trying to redo my look, but this is where I go when I'm really listening. You know, so here it was such a, 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 a difficult example, difficult because they, they were living together for, for a couple of decades of how much we 
we really always have to be in the learning mode and the inquisitive mode and the, you know, Ayeka, where are you? That's the she first question just asked, God asks us. She could have just right, asked, just what asked. are you thinking? What are you thinking now? Yeah. And, and, or what is, what is this experience that we're going through mean to you? You know, or, or how is it just to just have a check-in, you know, every, every good business from what I'm told, you know, they, they have brainstorming meetings, you know, and, and they just like, how are we doing? Remember Mayor Koch, how am I doing? Just the, the interest to know, you know, where we're at and what we need to adjust or tweak. And, and that's not, if somebody tells me what I could do better, it doesn't have to be criticism. It could just be education. You know, I'm just teaching you what, what I might need now. Maybe that wasn't what I needed a year for. Maybe you were doing great. And I, I just want you to address something that's not about you, but, but that's about me. Right. So How can we do better? The, yeah. Shifting the, the confrontations into education. Let's just make a time where we sit in and learn each other and talk about this business called marriage. You know, how's our corporation going? You know, very wise, very wise. Now, my, my questions till now have basically been focused on if a spouse comes to you and says, I'm not feeling connection. I have nothing in common. I have nothing to say, or we have nothing to say. How about somebody coming to you and not saying I, 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 but my spouse, I don't feel he's connecting. I feel that he feels that he has nothing in common to me. He seems to have nothing to say to me. How do you deal with a dynamic like that? Well, first, I, I think we have to really, you know, hold it and, and hear the truth in it. You know, and and it, it usually will take curiosity, you know, to really be able, whether it's with the other spouse, if they could do it with each other, or, you know, sometimes the other spouse, the, the spouse that's drifting may need their own time to address things that they feel they can't say in front of the other. Um, I was working with, with a young couple and, and she was saying this and he kept saying, no, no, no. But, but it turns out that he was very ashamed of certain things going on in business. And, and he was just unbelievably preoccupied and feeling like too much of a loser to, to really, you know, be connected. Um, other times, you know, there, there's a lot of unfortunate stuff that, that people may be drifting away. You know, I, I've worked with, a lot of spouses whose spouse drifting turns out that they were affiliated with, you know, with things like footsteps and, and going off their, you know, the, the derrick and, and just being somewhere else, literally, and, you know, in, in, in their minds and, and unfortunately, physically, just being in different spaces. So sometimes it, it really could be that the drift is real. And, uh, and, and it has to be brought out into the open. But, um, when, when the drift, when the other spouse is saying, look, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, it, it, as, as painful as it is, one partner could change a marriage, you know, and I, I think there's a, a beautiful thought that I saw many years ago in, in a Sicha that, um, there's, there's two psukim in Shira Shirim that are almost identical. And you almost wonder why we need both. One is Anila Dodi Vidodili. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. And the other is Dodi Liv Anilo. My beloved is to me and I am on his. And he says that, that there's two different times in a relationship. Sometimes I initiate my interest and then they come through, right? They, they take, you know, they take my lead. And other times they invest in me. And, you know, and, and then I, I say like, okay, I'm here, right? 
the beauty in that is to realize that there are going to be stages and waves in all of our marriages. Usually, one of the spouses will be the one to reinitiate the connection and bring the other back. It's important that sometimes it's me, sometimes it's you. But maybe right now I do have to do the heavy lifting, you know, and and as much as that could be sad, it could also be proud. I, I had a, a wonderful woman that that was living in a very, very um, disconnected marriage, and she really knew a lot of what to do. And, and she could have written the book herself, but she was choosing a lot of pain. And um, and she said, OK, three months, I'm going to invest in what changes I could make here. And she really did a lot of impressive work. And she said she called me up uh, a month after and uh, she said, honey, I, I was such a class act today. So what, she said, my husband came in and he said, you know, I have to really tell you what a great job. It was so good. You went and got help because it's just it's made such a difference, you know, and, and I really feel it. And, and she was so upset you know, making it sound like it was, it was her issue. And, uh, and she said, you know, I think either one of us could have done the work to bring this shift. And I, I'm just, I'm really proud that it, it was me. And I, I think that was beautiful. And it inspired her husband to do his own work that, that was really helpful. But that, that did bring, you know, a change and, and it did come from her. So, and when we do that, it's when Anila Dodi you know, that it's really the bigger investment that yields us the greatest feeling, you know, of, we, of who we are. Now we do you have know, just, hashnaim, hashnaim one may fall, the other will lift them up. So we see the same thing in the gorgeous. palace. That's so be- beautiful, beautiful. And and I think when we focus on, on my piece, you know, what's my piece and what could I do? It's It's more hopeful, it's more empowering. And uh, and you hope that, you know, that it'll be catchy, right? Right, absolutely. One last question for you. What's your advice to, to spouses on how to not drift away? Be proactive and build the relationship. How can we work on the relationship in a, in a positive way to ensure or hopefully ensure that we don't disconnect and don't have anything in common at some point in the future? Well, I, I, I don't know that we can ensure that, you know, I, I think accepting the fact that it will be there is helpful because then we won't get as scared when it happens and we won't think that it's this prescription for doom, you know. So I, I don't I think there there will always be, you know, just like the heartbeat of life, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and we just have to have some sort of toolbox ready for when, you know, we're at a low Um I think, you know, one one thought that really does help in all stages of, of being married is, you know, if I'm in a place of, of being disconnected or, or and usually it comes from a place of being dissatisfied in some way. Now, am I working on accepting my partner, just getting a kick out of who they are, you know, and not getting thrown by our differences or the fact that, you know, we're not the you know, the, the same person that I thought we'd become, but realizing that differences don't have to be a failure or a threat, that I am married to someone different. And and that is part of marriage. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you so much. Such good Aitzas. We really appreciate your joining us always, and we hope to see you soon. Pleasure. Again. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks. Pleasure. 
Joining us now is Rabbi Shmuel Maybrook. Rabbi Maybrook is a Rav and also a psychotherapist. His specialties include dating, marriage counseling and enhancement, improving couple and family interactions, and also marriage crisis intervention. Rabbi Maybrook, thank you so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. It really is. Why don't we start with a, a fundamental question? I think something that is so critical that every married dating person, somebody considering marriage should think about, is it normal for married couples to drift away from each other? And I would phrase it as follows. Which way is the inertia going? Which way is the direction we're being forced without our active involvement? Do spouses naturally drift away or move closer together? Or maybe does it depend on the couple? That's a really great question. And the best way to answer that is really to think about what does it mean? We talk about the idea of shalom bias. So we talk about marriage, marriage enhancement, ideas in marriage. What are the ingredients that make a, a marriage, a healthy marriage, according to the Torah, according to society? It might be helpful to think about the fact that there are really two core aspects to what makes a marriage a marriage. There's the commitment and the connection. Commitment really means that the two people are in a relationship where they're not just legally bound to each other, but they are intimating that you are important to me. Your feelings are important to me. What you think is important to me. Your ideas are important to me. You're an important person to me. That commitment is fundamental. And often that's what, if you think about it, that's what Chazal really are talking about when they mention shalom bias. Let's talk about perhaps the most famous example of shalom bias, that Nerus Shabbos, or for shalom bias. What happens if, if there's no Nerus Shabbos? Then it's dark. People get upset. Let's let's dissect that for a second. What does it mean they get upset at each other? So someone leaves their shoes in the middle of, of the room, and the other person doesn't see, and they start getting in a bad mood. So you leave your shoes in the middle of the room. So I feel like, oh, I don't understand. It's Shabbos. You know people are walking around. Leave your shoes. Take your leave your shoes somewhere else. I'm not chashu enough to you that you can make sure your shoes are, are away. So it's I internalize it that I'm not chashu to you. And then I get upset at you, let's say, and you feel, what? It's just shoes. Get over it. Can't you look at, I'm important, I'm a person too, I was busy over Shabbos. Now, if you dissect the situation, you're realizing what really happens there is people are, are taking the feelings about the shoes and personalizing them. They're feeling, are they important to their spouse or not? That's often what we talk about in Shalom Bias in general, that commitment. Let's say uh, a wife tries a new soup recipe. She makes soup for, for supper and she makes a new recipe. Husband doesn't say a word, doesn't say it's good or bad. So what the wife can often feel there is that you're not going to me. You don't, I don't matter to you. The fact that I put effort into trying to find a new recipe, whether it's for you or for me or for us, I don't even matter. So this commitment is the basic aspect of shalom bias. Literally, it's the harmony of showing the spouse that they're important to you. And it's not only the person, it's their feelings, their thoughts, their ideas. What matters to you matters to me. And that's one basic aspect. But there's a whole other aspect of shalom bias or of, of marriage, which is the connection. Connection is the emotional connection that exists between two people that really care about each other. And it goes beyond showing that they are important to one another. It's what the Raman calls in his parish, Mishnah, a person you feel you can rely on to understand you. You can talk about your thoughts, your feelings, your insecurities, your concerns, your dreams, and they're not going to laugh at you or poo-poo them or degrade you. The more you feel that you express insecurities and hesitations, the more they're being matched of you, because they're matched of you as a person that you are. That beautiful idea of a chavar bitachon, of someone you can really rely on, and they can look at you as you and be a person who is reliable to, to express your thoughts, your fears, 
your the good things and the bad things. That connection is a whole nother, another level of marriage. It's way beyond shalom bias. It's it's a feeling that you can connect and rely on a person and create a feeling of emotions. It's common to call that the emotional connection, the intimacy that's created by two people that really care about each other. It's interesting, if you think about it, in societies throughout the ages, and certainly in, even in Kali Yisrael, not every subculture has both aspects. The, the first aspect, the idea of commitment, that, that's an absolute, that's necessary. A marriage would be on the rocks. If, if a couple is not able to show each person that, that they're important to each other, then the spouse is very little that they're going to have in their marriage. There's not, much of, a ma- the There's not much of a marriage then. It's it, right. It could be. It's a technical marriage. The commitment, the legal aspect. One might even go to the table makes of tandu that there's there's really just the fact that two people are technically there that you have. But the the real aspect of marriage that we think about of people that are in some ways a team that you need there has to be some basic commitments. But the connection that depends a lot on society as far as if it's an expectation altogether and even if it is expected, how far could it be? Let's just go away from Kaiso for a second. In Victorian England, think about it. There, in Victorian England, there were very different roles for men and women. The men were educated. They were parts of the high society, and those that were the peasants or those that were low society were working hard. They were out in the fields or in the banks or doing things that they, they were doing. And their wives had, some wives couldn't read. Even high-class women couldn't read. They were, it was very hard to imagine. They had the deep emotional connection of feelings and thoughts and, and ideals sharing together. They had the commitment, perhaps, but the, the extra aspect of connection would be hard to imagine that they could they could maintain. Some might have had it, but certainly it's true in society, even nowadays, if there's a very big difference between husbands and wives, that connection might not be something that they want or that, that, that exists. On the other hand, in today's day and age, perhaps more than ever, we have often a situation where there's two spouses, both are of similar education, similar mindset, similar upbringing. They can really connect in this deep way and have the emotional connection more than perhaps it ever was possible in, in the history of, of mankind. The reason it's so important to think about it that way is that the more you expect from a marriage, the more you feel disappointed if you don't have it. If a couple doesn't expect this aspect of, of connection, emotional connection, emotional intimacy, then one might say it's sad if you know there is potential to have that and you don't. That is in some ways a tragedy, but they don't know what, what, what they're missing. But if they feel that they could have it, they feel it's an ideal and they don't have it, that could be tragic. And that's going to make a, a very fundamental flaw in their relationship, even though if they wouldn't have expected it, it wouldn't be as bad. And this is this is the average couple, they expect the commitment and the very basic aspect of being matched with each other. But beyond that, the emotional intimacy and the beauty, the beauty of being able to really be, be connected. Now, both of these cannot happen by themselves. First of all, even the commitment. Let's go back to the example of the wife making the soup or making a new challah recipe. These things happen all the time. Wife does something new. Husband does something new. Husband had work. He had some sort of interview today at work. And the wife doesn't ask him how it went. So even if Sheva Altas, they don't do anything, that is going to create an erosion in the marriage because she is not showing that he's important to her. He is not showing that she's important to him. And that itself is going to, the default is going to eventually help them feel more distant from each other. But so certainly if we're trying... So inertia is separating, is drifting away, and it needs... Absolutely. By definition, inertia is going to create separating because it's it's not only that you need to invest because otherwise you're going to, to, you're going to separate. The whole point of having the emotional connection or the commitment is that things happen day to day, and those are responded to by the couples day to day. So you can never have a marriage frozen in time because if since things happen all the time, if a couple is not, if one aspect, one spouse is not responding 
to the other one or thinking about the other one or showing that, then since there are many life events and the couple's going to, one member of the couple is ignoring those, by definition, that's going to not even be inertia. It's going to be uh, uh, an erosion of, there's going to be space that keeps on growing and growing in the relationship. And right. certainly if you're trying to, trying to have the emotional connection, the emotional commitment, the, the real emotional intimacy. So that means talking about thoughts, feelings, dreams, ideals, those change. Our feelings change, our moods change, what's going on day to day changes. So if my best friend is, is my spouse and, and I'm trying to talk to my spouse about what's going on and they're not there for me or they're, they're oblivious. So that's going to terribly cause a, 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 an absolute decay in the relationship because I rely on it all the time. So both of these need investment because the default is going to be a complete separation of the two people that are connected to each other. Right. So let's say a couple comes to you and they say, we feel disconnected in our marriage. We're just not feeling it. We've drifted away. How do you go through an analysis of what is causing a disconnection between spouses? The primary reason that this is going to happen is because within the spouse relationship, there's something missing in their ability to communicate and show that they're there for each other. And this goes back to whatever level of their marriage is on. One of the things that marriages really need and all relationships really need is the ability to communicate and to show the person that what you're saying matters to me. So in most situations, if a couple comes in crisis, there's probably something, it's not just missing in communication. It's that the communication doesn't even get off the ground. And that means that for a couple to, to communicate, even for friends to communicate, for, for, for a husband, for, for a father and, and son, for an employee and employer to communicate in any human interaction, what defines a, a, a connection and communication as successful or not is how well the person being talked to listens to the person who's talking. That is, if let's say I'm talking to you, Ari, and I say something to you about, about politics or current events, and certainly something that's, that's emotional. If you, in the middle of talking, all of a sudden start telling me your opinion, I feel like I'm being shut down. That happens to be, it's, it's funny, especially in, uh, in New York, the way you, you show that you're interested in someone is by cutting them off and by be, being involved. But the message I get, if you interrupt me while I'm talking to you, is that your opinion is more important than what I'm saying. Imagine, let's say, like I'm the performer at a concert, I'm talking, and as I'm talking, the, I'm singing, and as I'm singing at, at a concert, all of a sudden the spotlight goes off of me and goes somewhere else. I feel like, hello, like, what's, hap- what's, what's going on? So if I'm talking and I'm expressing an idea, even a basic idea in politics, and I'll have some of common idea which is really close to my heart, an insecurity, or something that, that bothers me, and you interrupt me, and you let me finish my sentence, I feel shut down, and I feel like you don't really want to hear what I have to say. So if there's a couple in crisis, there's probably something going on in the, the listening. So listening means that, number one, don't interrupt the person that's talking. And also, while they're talking, make sure to focus, let them feel that you're listening. In today's day and age, it's very common for a person to have some sort of technology, a computer or a phone or whatever technology is acceptable in the family in, in close proximity. The person starts looking at the technology or even notices that it's uh, the phone is, is ringing. That gives a message to the person, what you're saying is important to me, but so is the phone. And that means if I'm talking to you, Ari, and I notice that you're also checking your, your email, I feel disconnected. So I'm, I'm really not. I'm really not, just so you know. <laughs> I'm focused 100%, 100%. And, and, I, and I feel it. But Ari, if you think about it, another way to, to do that is also by having eye contact, to, to look at the person and show that you're really listening to what they're doing. You're listening to what they're saying. You're, you're interested in hearing what they're saying to you because it matters. Including that, it's not just eye contact, nonverbals are really, really important. I mentioned, let's say, technology or, or reading something or doing something else. But let's say, are you telling me a joke? 
and I look at you blankly, and I just uh, just look. Then you feel like something's missing. You didn't get the joke. He's elsewhere. Could be, I've, 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 right. Could be I have a bad sense of humor, or I'm elsewhere. And then you feel like, hello, Shmuel doesn't notice what's going on. Why isn't he captain? Especially if you're telling me that you had a really hard day at work, and, and things were really bothersome. And I, I'm spacing out, I'm looking around, and I say, oh, uh-huh. So you want my verbal speech? Wow, Ari, that was tough. I don't need to add any advice, but to show you that what you said hit the spot. So if, if a couple is in crisis, something's going on in their day-to-day communications that probably isn't letting that happen. Just to add, the icing on the cake, or maybe the creme de la creme of really active listening to, to another person, and this is way beyond marriage, but it comes to a head most in marriage, is the ability to summarize what a person says and tell it back to them. Because Ari, let's say I'm talking to you, and I could be talking for 20 minutes about something really hard that happened to me. I don't really know that you heard what I'm saying. You could be really involved in something else, you're spacing out, but you, you're trained and you have eye contact, you're even smiling when I say something nice, and family when I say something not, but what's mostly on your mind is your own stuff. There's no way I really have proof positive you listen. But if you say, Shmuel, what you're saying is that this is concerning you. I feel like, whoa, Ari, that's me. That's that's priceless. And it also gives me an opportunity to correct. Let's say, very often, because words are our only words, it's hard to imagine that if you talk to me, Ari, or I talk to you, or anyone talks to anyone else, they get meachuz, 100% of what the person says. 85 or 90 is, is already good, but I want you to get 100. So if you summarize what I said, and you I, and you tell that to me, then I say, Ari, you're right, but at one point, I really meant this point, then I feel, I contract it, and I feel, wow, that's a real friend, that's a connection. Those things, that act of listening, the ability to talk, not to interrupt, to listen, to show the person that what you're saying is important. It's something that happens all the time in relationships, in big things and small things. If it happens well, chances are the couple is is flying high. If it doesn't happen, chances are the couple is in a very serious strafe. I assume it shouldn't be that the spouse who is speaking quizzes the listening spouse saying, can you repeat what I just said? That That's right. not so, well. You are, you're so right. You're so right. You know, there's a big, they, they sometimes quote from some of the Alimus or from some others, some of these ideas that float around to that. The greatest idea in marriage is to be Mavatar. So I personally, my bias, I'm, I'm not a fan of being Mavatar in, in one way. We all have thoughts, feelings, emotions. If If I tell you my emotions, and then you say, well, I don't really care. So for me, being Mavatar is, is not helpful. That's not, you should really work on yourself to listen to my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings. The idea of being Mavatar means, but what if what if you're having a bad day? What if you're not in the mood? What if you're, you're, you're not doing what you should? What if you didn't actively listen? You didn't actively listen to me. So there, my job is to be Mavatar. I should try if I can to be Mavatar. There, being Mavatar is very, very important. Making concessions, saying, you know, I really a good friend, and really I'd like to be able to talk to him more. It's just that right now, he was a little bit elsewhere, not to hold it against you and create a scorecard. There being Vatra is important. Yes, there being able to, to not hold a grudge and not to hold it personally is important in every marriage. There's a big discussion in researchers of exactly what the ratio is, but, but according to most researchers, those that are more rigorous and those that are more general, in every marriage, there are positive interactions and negative interactions. What makes a marriage successful is not that it's all positive interactions. It's that the number of positive interactions compared with the negative interactions are ruba ruba. They greatly outnumber it. Some like saying number five to one. Others say you don't need to be so rigorous. But the concept is not that there's negative interactions, that no negative interactions. It's that the negative interactions are dwarfed by the positive interactions. So that's, that's where being Mavatar is very, very important. I can accept the fact that no spouse is perfect, and they sometimes are not able to hear things, and they, they have their own stuff, and that is 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 essential. But within right. the realm of, of normals, they're able to have that general feeling of 
more positive than negative. So I, I do hear the focus definitively on communication, on listening. I'm actually repeating back what you said to tell you that yeah. I was active listening, etc. To me, it, it, it sounds like we are equating the communication and the needs of active listening between a woman, um, uh, two spouses, wife and a husband. But oftentimes we hear about the needs of men and women being different in how they connect to each other. How can you explain that? Uh, communication clearly important, but how can we also have apparently different needs and different ways of connecting oftentimes being a female versus a male? So I have a, a strong bias here. There are those that, that like saying that men and women communicate differently, or men and women have very different needs. And I think it's fundamentally erroneous. It's not really true. Often the, the, the conventional wisdom says that, that men are more problem solvers and women are more emotional. But in reality, we, we, we all need both. A way to think of it should be, let's say, let's imagine, for those that are familiar with the tri-state area, let's imagine I'm going to work from New Jersey to, to New York, going at rush hour over the George Washington Bridge. And let's say, for those that are familiar with the George Washington Bridge, there, there's very little shoulders on, on the George Washington Bridge. So if a person is stuck, then they're stuck and traffic will build up behind them. Let's say I go to the George Washington Bridge and as I approach, right in the middle, middle lane, all of a sudden I get a flat and my car cannot move. So I'm beside myself. I see traffic building up behind me. I feel that I'm going to be the item on all the, the news stations that are talking about the traffic. And how many people are going to be late for work because of me? So let's say I decide I need to call AA. I call AA and say, AA, I have an emergency. I need you to come get me to the shoulder and fix my tire. So AA says, oh, I said, Mr. Maybrook, uh, wow, that's a tough situation. Tell me, how does it make you feel being stuck in the middle of the George Johnson Bridge? So I'm going to say to them, I'm canceling my subscription. That's terrible. I, that's not my, that's not your job. You're supposed to problem solve. I mean, let's say, Ari, let's say I know you and I call you and let's say you're far away. You're not nowhere in New York. New York. And I say, Ari, I'm stuck at the George on the bridge and I feel terrible. And you say, oh, Shmuel, you know, I'll tell you how to fix the, the tire. Here's what you can do. Go to the jack. You know, most cars are with the jack. But Ari, I'm not calling you for that. I'm calling you because I'm, I'm flipping out. I feel so overwhelmed here. I feel like I'm making so many thousands of people wait for work. I might lose my job. I feel actually responsible because I, in the middle of, of the night, I noticed that there was a little tire pressure that was lower in my car. I should have done it beforehand. You say, Shmuel, you're saying the party feels a little responsible. You should have taken care of this before. And I say, yes, Ari, I should have done that. And all of a sudden, I feel my blood pressure goes down. I feel, well, Ari's listening to me. So I need the problem solved. I need you to listen. But if you if you mix the two, then it's tragic. And it might be different degrees and different people based upon acculturation, who needs what, who needs the other in terms of, of levels. But both men and women need both, and we need both all the time. The worst thing is if a spouse comes home and wants to just ventilate his emotions, and instead he feels that he's, his wife is problem-solving, or the other way around, that's going to create a, a big disconnect. But we need both. So I think often the emphasis between men and women is really incorrect. I sometimes say, barring what the research says, if you dissect or you look at, at a, a scan of men's and women's brains, most researchers cannot tell the difference between men and women's, men's and women's brains. It might be acculturation and certain things that influence people some ways as opposed to others, but barring all the political and, and, and general aspects of, of men and women in terms of the way that they're acculturated and the way we teach people to be, we, we need the emotional connection and our emotions to ventilate, and we also need to problem solve, and we need both. The problem is when we switch them, not that, that we need one as opposed to the other. That was a very interesting response. Thank you for that. Very interesting. Um, people are listening. 
And we're talking about the importance of connecting and maintaining a connection to a spouse. What happens if you have spouses, a couple that has already disconnected? They've drifted away. How can you or can you reconnect once you've really gone on different paths in life? It's a great question. And it's really something which is important for all of us, because whether a couple is extremely disconnected or a couple is going through a tough time like every couple goes through. It's important to keep in mind that question and some of the thoughts that come to my mind when you ask me that question. Let's think about it this way. Let's say you and I, we're going to play tennis. We're going to, to just have a volley. So three things can happen if we're going to volley. If we're both reasonably good tennis players and I volley to you, you volley back, we've known for 20 minutes or half hour, as long as we're, we're both pretty good at it. We don't even say a word. And, and I'm going to feel after the match is over, after the volley is over, I'm going to feel connected to you. I feel, hey, that was a really good match. We didn't say a word. There was a certain rhythm that between us, and that was really helpful. What if I, I serve to you, and you miss the serve because you're looking at, at, at your phone, or you're just looking at, at the trees? So how am I going to feel? feel a little bit like, mm, that wasn't so nice. I do it again, and you're still looking at the trees, or you're looking at the wall. I feel like, well, Ari, what are we doing here? It's like, uh, not, not so great. What if, Ari, I'm sure it happens even to you, happens to all of us, certainly happens to me. What if you're in a bad mood? And... I've pulled you to the court to, to volley, and I serve to you, and you're really upset. Say, Shmuel, you don't understand. I have headlines to run. I have a lot of more important things to do than volley. I can't do this. So you take the, the racket, you, and you slam it back at me. I told you, whoa, 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 excuse me for living. Like, hold on. What happened to you? So I feel, and if you do that again, I feel very disconnected. Those three aspects of how I volley to you and how you respond on the tennis court really describe what happens day to day in a couple hundreds of times. If I, if I, connect to you, what some call a bid for connection. That's a famous idea made, made famous originally by, by Dr. Jean Mordechai Gottman. If, if I serve to you, I say, hey, Ari, what's up? How's life? Or I say to my spouse, how are you? And my spouse gives me a smile back. I feel connected. What if my spouse would say, well, you know, if you put the garbage off the floor, then it would be a nice day. I feel like, whoa, 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 what happened to you? That's negative bid. What if sometimes in, in the middle, I say good morning, my spouse is, is just spacing out. So I feel that she didn't really hear me or didn't respond, I'm going to feel that hmm, sometimes in between. Those things happen hundreds of times a day. Sometimes they're verbal, sometimes they're nonverbal. If I can look at my spouse and smile, if she smiles back, I feel connected. If if I look at my spouse and she just ignores me, I feel disconnected. Now, these things happen all the time, and all couples have a mix of all three. Even the negative aspects of like, yeah, people get upset at each other for not picking up the garbage or for not taking out the garbage or for, for staying in Seder too long or for or for not calling when you're on the way home. These are all parts of normal day-to-day life. But if it happens all the time, if I come home from work, listen, my wife says, Shmuel, why don't you call? And I feel all upset, ho, ho, that was, and I say, well, if you would have told me you needed me to call, then it would have called. It all of a sudden becomes a, a big negative bid that's going to be mavatal, a lot of the positive positive aspects that existed. So a way to think of a couple that's in crisis is in all probability, what happens is they have a lot of those negative slams, those slams on the tennis court that's happening. Even They might even have the, the zero, the, the not so connected, not so, not so disconnected, but there's very little of the positive that's there. That's what's going to create this disconnection in a marriage. Can it be revitalized? Of course. Part of the aspect, part of the beauty of listening is that it's not just a way of communicating. Marriage is a lot more than communication. There's a depth to the, to the communication that shows you are important to me. You can rely on me. And that is what makes a marriage strong. So the more positive biz that exist, they're not just communicating and not just emphasizing the connection. They're creating the 
bond which shows we can be together and we can rely on each other. The more those are there, you don't have a marriage which is succeeding. If it's not, chances are it's not just the listening. But these tennis court examples were too close to home in the ignoring the, the serve or certainly slamming it back. That's what created the disconnection in the first place. It can be certainly revitalized by looking at what's happening under microscope and trying to help the couple focus more on the positive bits and the connection and the listening, the ability to have the positivity, which they, which they probably both want. I like that muscle of the tennis volleying. That's uh, that's very good. Okay, so positive communication throughout the day. Hopefully it's positive and it's a positive volley, not a, a negative slamming volley. How can we try to build that bond, which you talked about as well, building that bond early in a marriage, maybe even before a marriage, so that the volleying throughout the marriage, that positive communication can stay positive and we can avoid the slamming and the negativity and focus on the positive. So what, what can be done when maybe when people are dating, when maybe when looking for a spouse and at the beginning of the marriage in order to build a more positive bond so there will be more positive volleying going forward? I mean, if somebody... Great questions. That's really cut to the core of, of what makes marriage and what makes a relationship strong. One of the things that happens in, in relationships that makes it hard sometimes to volley positively is that we take things very personally. And there are several reasons to do that. Sometimes there are perpetual conflicts. We have issues that come up in a relationship that come up over and over and over. And if it comes up over and over and over, despite the best efforts to listening and trying to really connect and talk about things, there are some triggers that make a person unable to listen to the other person. And the more that the couple knows that those are common things to happen, and every marriage just have perpetual conflicts, the more they're prepared for the fact that, yes, your listening is pretty good, your ability to connect is pretty good. Don't be caught off guard that there are certain things that might be hard. And we, it's helpful to teach couples there are certain areas that are harder to talk about. For example, sometimes Couples are certainly newlyweds, and, and even those that are more seasonably married, it might happen for one's entire life. Couples view it as their job. They are the representatives of their family in the marriage, meaning all the interests and needs of, of their family come through them and have to be expressed. They're, they're the, the ambassador of their family to their marriage. It comes up, it's very often an issue, a point of contention between young couples and even couples that are experienced and, and married for a long time. Where are you Wedded or fiantif is not just about wedded or fiantif. There's a problem. Let's talk about a, a family in Chutzaretz. There's two sedarim, but only two sedarim. So you can't say that the first days of Sukkot are the same as two sedarim. And there are there's going to be an inequity during the year. Now, I view it as my job. I need to be the ambassador of the most important need for my family. Not just, not just about me, that I have fond memories of Pesach growing up. I want to experience that with you, my spouse. I view it as it's my job to be the ambassador. My family will feel insulted. And my family is more important than your family because they're my family. You feel your family is more important than, than, than my family. That's going, So that pressure, which is often unstated, is a, a very healthy tension that exists in, in a relationship. To let a couple know that's a normal thing, to feel tensions of family, to feel tensions about finances, to feel tensions about how to budget their time, the intimate time together, and how that that is configured within the, the greater part of life and their responsibilities to others. These are things that couples need to figure out. But to go into marriage knowing that it's common to have perpetual conflicts, things that aren't always resolved about some of these topics, is very helpful because instead of being shot in, in the face with cold water that, that a couple doesn't expect, at least knowing the expectations, being able to be aware of that, is very, very helpful. And to know that despite the the efforts of communicating and talking about things, things don't always go totally the way you want them to, and that's okay. The expectations being set is one really, really important aspect. And another thing to help the couple understand is 
that the goal that they're focusing on when they're dating or in marriage is to show each spouse, each potential spouse, each person you're dating, that they're important. And this is an issue which we see in Kaisha now across the culture. There's a big discussion within dating. How should a couple date? You'll have certain parts of Kaisha that believe that four dates is already enough time to get engaged. Others that believe that four months is, is time to get engaged. And you have uh, uh, many different opinions in between and, and to both extremes. So clearly conversations take on different aspects of, of communication when you're going out for four dates as opposed to four months. But one thing which is important, in all these, there needs to be some way of showing the person that your needs and who you are is important to me. It might be in a couple that's dating that their ideals to date three or four dates. It's to to listen well and to hear what the person says. It doesn't mean necessarily they're going to share their deep emotions, as a couple might do when they're dating for four months, but it, it, it means that they should be able to show that they care about the other person. It might even be doing something for the other person, like scheduling, scheduling-wise, but certainly the ability to listen and to hear what they're saying is an important goal. That is one of the most important things to happen during the dates, however long or short dating is. And certainly four months, people often feel that they're dating for four months or five months or six months. It's hanging out, having a fun time, being with the schmooze together. But it's it's so sad when a couple comes to me, let's say after three or four months of dating, say we've been dating three or four months, but we don't feel it. So the reason they don't feel it often is because they've been hanging out and dating for a long time, which is very fun. But if they don't allow themselves to have connective conversations where they're showing that each other is important, not just selfish because they're fun to hang around, but their their feelings are important, their emotions are important, and they're important to each other. If those conversations aren't there, although they're dating calendarically three or four months, emotionally their relationship is three or four days. So whatever part of a subculture a person's in, the, the way to date is to show that the person sitting in front of you can be important to you. Of course, marriage, you have a whole life. You can have a whole life to develop that, but the basic aspect needs to be that bedrock is important in any way the person dates. Very good. So set expectations that things will be rocky. It's just going to happen. That's number one. And number two is so that you're important to me. You're really coming back to what you started with. The key is commitment and connection. And what you're saying is build the bedrock now of commitment and connection so you can build on that going forward. And in some way, I would, I, I would, it's funny. I have a visceral reaction when you say that expect things will be rocky. I wouldn't say it as, as rocky. I would say more in the ocean, in, in the ocean of smooth sailing, you can still see glaciers. Meaning if things are rocky, that's not helpful. It's the fact that smooth sailing doesn't mean that everything's great. Smooth sailing means that you have to navigate around glaciers, navigate around land masses. You have to go around. There, don't be caught off guard because there are things that, that you didn't expect that are going to make things go awry. But the direct file, things certainly should be should be smooth. The idea the Ran says, in his parish for the rift, the Ran says that the word shidduch means that you feel calm. There should be a certain sense of calm in, in dating and certainly in marriage. That calmness is the ability to have a bond which is going to be there. And don't don't get caught off guard if sometimes things happen that you didn't necessarily expect because that's that's fine. That's part of life. Let, let's not hit the rocks, but there are going to be some waves we'll have to go over. Yes, yes, okay. for sure. Rabbi Maybrook, I want to thank you so much for joining us. So many pearls of wisdom you have shared with us. We greatly appreciate it. I, I appreciate your kind words. My pleasure to be here. Joining us now is Mrs. Sara Yocheved Riegler. Mrs. Riegler is a world-renowned author, but in addition to her wonderful book, she also teaches a marriage seminar. She's been doing that for 10 years, for which you can find information on her website, sarahriegler.com. Mrs. Riegler, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm always happy to be on 
headlines where such intelligent people tune in. Oh, well, I hope so. Yeah, I think they are. Definitely, I think they are. So, Mrs. Riggler, we are going to focus on one segment. We're talking about connection and marriage, avoiding the downs, working on the ups. And we're going to focus on midlife and thereafter. So that's what's going to be our focus. And I'd like to start out with in midlife and thereafter, we'll have to find midlife probably 50s in your 50s. Do you feel... It's normal for spouses to drift away from each other. And in other words, do you think that the inertia going into a marriage, marriage inertia, the direction that you're going in, do you think the natural direction is that spouses drift apart or move closer together? Or does it maybe depend on the couple? I think the dynamic in a marriage depends on one factor. And that is, is this a couple that invests in their marriage? You know, people like think that marriage, you just, you, you just something that should just happen naturally. It, it is natural. It's like a lawn. A marriage is like a lawn. If you tend to it, you water it, you mow it, you weed it, it'll be beautiful. But if you let nature take its course, the lawn will either be dead or overgrown. It'll turn into a wild weed patch. You have to tend to a marriage at every stage of life. Now, the term inertia, I don't think is the right term here. Marriage doesn't keep going unless acted upon by an external force. <laughs> That's what inertia is. The term I would use is entropy. Entropy suggests a gradual decline, like a running out of energy. A marriage can't keep going on automatic. There's no cruise control in marriage. You have to drive the car. You have to invest time, energy, and attention to keep the marriage running well at any stage. So if we were using the use entropy... If that's going to be our definition, that means the direction is going to be going apart, drifting apart, as opposed to coming together. And you actively need to manicure the marriage like a lawn or otherwise it will it will get full of weeds. For sure. It, it, the natural uh, dynamic is to grow apart because, as Rav Shlomo Walba Zal explained, there's a force called the Elzar, which is a force. The Gemara mentions it in terms of, you know, sometimes it's called the Yetzirah, sometimes it's the Malchamaves, but it's the, it's the Satan. It's this negative force. The Elzar is when it's wearing the hat of a force that tries to create alienation, Elzar a force that tries to create alienation between people and the the most uh, the best target the the most uh valued target of the alzar is married jewish couples because we are the ones who are supposed to be the most connected and therefore the alzar always on a daily basis tries to get married jewish couples to uh uh, you know, get upset with each other, estranged from each other, neglect each other, whatever it is. So, of course, if you, if left, if that force is left to its own, it will it will always drive couples apart. Okay, very good. So, let, let's get some definitions: midlife marriage, golden age marriage. Should we discuss both of those together? If you could define what the ages are when people hit it, or maybe you hit certain certain points in your life, and do you think that the challenge is the entropy is going? to be the same or is going to be different at those two stages in a couple's life? Well, the entropy will be the same because it's always the LZR working, but it manifests differently. I would call midlife, I mean, I don't know what the technical term for midlife is. I assume it's like 50s and 50s and early 60s or mid 60s. I would term it as the period in a marriage where the children grow up and get married and move away and leave empty nested. And I would term golden age 
<laughs> which is <laughs> which is a euphemism if ever there was one as a uh, you know, from late 60s above, 70s and 80s. And there are different issues. Some of the issues are the same because at that golden age also, the people are empty nested, but there are new issues that come with golden age, like, you know, the decline of age that comes. Let me ask you, Mrs. Regular, it sounds like that the relationship changes when you go from midlife to the golden age. So walk us through how does the relationship change and what's the impact on the spouses? So the golden age has its own problems because both the husband and wife decline, assuming that they're approximately the same age. And, uh, you know, this is I, I I'm, a, I, I'm very qualified to speak on the subject because I'm 76 years old. I had my 76th birthday last week, and, and Mazel tov. Uh, Mazel tov. thank you. You know, we don't hear as well, we don't see as well, we don't remember as well, we don't have as much energy at this age. So you can get into a lot of friction where the wife keeps saying, "What? You didn't hear me? I told you that three times. You need to go get a hearing aid." Where the husband says. What do you mean you don't have enough energy to, to have our children and our 10 grandchildren over for Shabbos? What's wrong with you? you no, know, like you, when people reject change, which most people do, most people, I mean, I just gave a thing for Jewish workshops, a, 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 work, a, a webinar on this about embracing change and anticipating change. And most of us don't embrace change. We reject change. So I don't, I, it's hard for me that my husband doesn't hear as well. It's hard for him that I don't have as much energy. It's hard for both of us that we don't remember as well. My husband remembers names much better than I do. And I remember, you know, uh, things that happen much better than he does. People also, they, they, the decline happens in different ways to, to each spouse. So uh, although these are problems of the golden age, the wrong way of handling these problems no doubt started or continued in life. So okay. if the wife is used to nagging her husband, if, 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 she, if, she, if she's used to nagging her husband, she'll have much more to nag him about when he gets older and he can't hear and he can't remember as well. And if the husband is used to criticizing his wife, he'll have much more to criticize her for. So the dynamic of the relationship stays the same, but the relationship gets worse. More nagging, more criticism, and more reasons to argue. Oh, very interesting and unfortunate. So why don't we take it step by step then? Let's go back to midlife marriage. During the midlife marriage, 50s, Thereafterward, what do you think causes the disconnecting? And conversely, what is needed in order to connect? And we're talking about actively connecting because we are trying to go against the entropy. Okay, so there are at every stage of marriage, there are three main causes for disconnecting. I have, as you mentioned, I give a weekly marriage webinar or in Jewish workshops. I call it the Kesher Wife Webinar, it's just for women. And we have the main culprit is what we call the three sins. And we spell sins with a C, C-I-N-S, because the three sins all begin with C, criticizing, correcting, and controlling. The three sins drive spouses apart. No one likes to be criticized. No one likes to be corrected. No one likes to be controlled. And of course, when I'm talking about control here, I'm not talking about abusive marriages. That's not our subject. So I'm talking about normal marriages where normal spouses tend to, to one degree or another, criticize, correct, or control their spouses. So spouses tend to disconnect from the spouse who is committing the three sins. And what is needed for connecting? Obviously, to stop committing the three sins. You don't like the way your husband dresses? You don't have to point it out to him. Let him leave him alone. You don't well, like go him. Go buy him clothing. Go buy him clothing. He might think that that's controlling him. 
He might sure. think that that's or he might not. It depends on the person. Some men are very happy for his, their wives to dress them. Some men are not. So, it, but depend. But criticizing your husband for the way he dresses because you don't like his the image or you know you're embarrassed by it is it's like swallow it. You don't like how much your wife talks to her friends on the phone. Swallow it. Because both wives and husbands suffer from the delusion. This is the great delusion of marriage is that when my spouse does something wrong, I just have to point it out to them and they'll change. No, they will not change. No one ever changes in the long term from being criticized or corrected. It's only long term effect is to make the husband avoid his wife, which husbands can be very good at. They spend more time at work or in the base midrash or in the, or in the phone or watching sports or movies. Husbands are very good at avoiding wives who criticize them and correct them too much. And there are many, you know, there and wives, wives do not choose to avoid their husbands for the very simple reason as much because women, you know, there's the curse of Hava that, that the wife will desire for her husband. Her desire will be for her husband. So wives want relationships that so they're not going to avoid their husbands as much as husbands are experts at avoiding their wives, but they are, uh, but they can build resentment over time that really can sour a marriage. And of course, the main challenge of marriage in middle age is that the children grow up and get married. This is uh, what I was talking about. The three sins is for all stages of marriage. The main challenge of marriage in middle age is that the children grow up, they get married and they leave them. The couple's left empty nested. And if there was a couple where they spent 90% of their care and their communication and everything on the children and say the children aren't there, that's really an empty nest. So a turning point in my marriage came about 30-some years ago. I was going to my first Shalom Bias class with Racheli Miller. Racheli Miller, the wonderful Shalom Bias teacher, had just started teaching. She has a book out now. And uh, anyway, Racheli had just started teaching. And I was, you know, I lived in for 38 years in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. I just, we just moved a month and a half ago to be closer to our daughter and uh, and other reasons. And uh, anyway, so there Racheli Miller was sitting in the in a library in the Jewish quarter with this table of from from women and she made a statement that made everybody's jaw drop she said to us and we were all those days we were probably in our 30s and 40s and she said the most important relationship in your life is your marriage and we were all in consternation we thought what no, the most important relationship in our life is our children. Our children are the ones that we're spending all our time and concern about, you know, we're taking care of children. You had young children at that point. Of course, your children take up most of your time and your energy and your concern. And uh, and Racheli Miller laid it out clearly. No, the most important, you might spend more time with your children. You've got children take a lot of time, but the most important relationship in your life is your marriage. So if you have a marriage, and so that that was a life changer for me. That was a real game changer. And I think for all the women there. And uh, although you, you know, you have to give children what they need when they need it. You have very young children I'm talking about, but for all children, they take up so much of our mental energy. And uh, if you don't consciously make your marriage your priority at every stage of life. Then when you get to the mid middle age and the children are gone, then the couple's left with a very undeveloped relationship and it becomes a big problem. So what you're saying is dis- disconnection fundamentally as a result of the three sins with a C, criticism, 
correction, correcting the other and being controlling. What would you say are other factors that make connection even worse? For example, if you have different political views, we live in a very politicized world. The United States is very politicized. Israel is very politicized. If you have different interests, if you have different hobbies, if you have different uses of social media, I don't use it, you use it, you're on the phone in front of me. What would you say are other factors that can really exacerbate things? Well, if couples want something to argue about, whether it's political views or the new rabbi in town, people can always find something to argue about, right? A wise couple avoids talking about subjects that distance them from each other. Hashem loves variety. That's why Hashem created so many different types of fruit, as we saw in Tishabah, right? On t- excuse me, in Tubishvat. On Tubishvat, we ate all these different kinds of fruit, different tastes, different colors, different textures. Why did Hashem create so many different kinds of fruit? Why wasn't he just satisfied with dates and uh, pomegranates? Because Hashem loves variety. And he created not just many different types of people, but Hashem created every single person unique. You know, Hazal say that an earthly king mints coins and every one of them is alike, identical. But the king of kings mints people and every one, every single one is different. So when we learn to, to respect the differences in our spouse. He doesn't have to think like me. He doesn't have to act like me. You know, the Myers-Briggs system has um, has five different uh, pairs of personality types, like extrovert, introvert, or feeling thinking, or, you know, the very orderly kind that likes to make schedules and lists and the spontaneous kind. And um, Adam has a book called Appreciate People, where she gives uh, like quizzes about, you know, so because it's complex. It's not just, oh, he, he wants, he's extroverted, wants a lot of Shabbos guests, and I'm introverted, and I don't. It's, it's more complex than that. So there's a whole quiz where you have to answer, I think, 20 questions about each thing. Anyway, my husband and I did it, and it turned out that we were opposite in every single category. But we have a great marriage, you know? So it's so differences don't have to breed conflict. Differences are something that we should just be able to respect in each other. If he's a vociferous right winger and she's more moderate, or if he likes to relax watching basketball and she likes, you know, and she likes, she does pottery, like, so what? So what? The Elsar is trying to make these issues. We don't have to fall for it. All right. So let's just fast forward. Thank you so much for that. Let's fast forward to the golden age marriage. And the same question, we went through and we talked about middle-age marriage, golden age marriage, what is needed for connecting? So at every stage, there's one cure-all. I mean, usually cure-alls don't work, but there's a panacea for connecting in every age, for, for creating emotional connection, and that is date night. What is date night? Date night is you take one night, uh, ideally one night a week, but minimally two nights a month, and you go out, the two of you go out, it's really preferable to go out than to stay home because the walls of your house are always shouting out what you should be doing. Even, you know, in the golden age when there's nobody else home, you know, but still the walls are in the, in, in your house, you play many roles. When you go out on date night, you're nothing but I am a wife or I am a husband. And you go out, to, hopefully you live in a place where you have a nice kosher restaurants, and you go out to dinner and you have a glass of wine and you relax. And you there. we have four rules in our Kesher Wife Club. We have four rules of the day. No talking about business, finance, children, or problems. And so people say, well, what can I talk about? So we have a date night booklet that 
that I carry in my purse all the time. And whenever we're on a date, I pull it out and hand it to my husband and you know, pick the question. So the date night questions fall into three categories. One is imaginative questions. Like if you, if you won the lottery and you had $500 million, what would you do with it? Or if you could live anywhere in the world, what, where would you live? Or if you could you know, live in any, in any house, how would you like design your dream house? Or if you could be any profession in the world, like just magically download all the knowledge and skills to do anything, what would you do? And imaginative questions are fun. They kind of free you up. We live so much constricted into the life that we live and the world we live in. And so imaginative questions free you up. So, that's, so that starts, it's just like, those are imaginative questions. There's others in the same category. The uh-huh. second category is... So the point is build the connection. Emotional connection. So I want to say what the three categories are because the um, because they're important to uh, to give you the latitude as to what kind of questions. The second are historical questions. You know, who was your favorite aunt growing up? What was the most? What do you think was the most challenging year of our marriage? What, you know, who was your favorite teacher? Whatever, like that. And the third category is how is feeling questions. How do you feel about our youngest child getting married? How do you feel about our grandson, you know, uh, getting our youngest grandson having a bar mitzvah? How do you feel about our children moving so far away? Things, how do you feel? How do you feel? And here's the thing. Women are happy to talk about their feelings. Men are usually not. But we had a Kesher wife. We have a Kesher wife, one of our members. We call them Kesher wives, who was married to an accountant who was born and raised in Russia. And I mean, they were not golden age. They'd been married about 15 years. And she said, you know, he, he didn't want to go out on date night. He didn't want to answer questions, but they did. But he, you know, he agreed. He went and they went out on date night. She pulled out her booklet. She asked him the question who, from the historical list. Who was your best friend in high school? And what did you do for fun? That was one of our questions. So uh, much to her surprise, he started talking about his best friend in high school. He went to high school in Russia and about all the anti-Semitism he experienced in Russia. He had in 15 years of marriage, he had never talked about his high school years, his teenage years. Never. She was shocked. But there they were at date night. You're having a nice, you know, the wife dresses up. You go out to a nice restaurant. You have a glass of wine. You relax. And people open up and they connect emotionally. And it's extremely important. And of course, it should end up with physical intimacy as well, date night, because that's the ikar of a Jewish marriage. Right. So it's interesting. You're, you're connecting to somebody and this person you have been married to possibly for many years and you're learning new things about them, Absolutely. maybe significant things about them that you've never heard about before. Absolutely. Absolutely. The idea that, oh, I know my husband through and through is always false. There are layers of every single person that you don't know, even after decades of marriage. And uh, you have to be open to trying to bring that out. And the more you learn, you also have to work on what we call active listening, to listen, to not interrupt him, to to not contradict him, to not say, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. No, to just listen. And then a man opens up. The more that a wife listens, the more a husband will talk. And vice and, versa. And vice versa. But, but, right. but wives are easy to get to talk. And nine of them went to women. You said it. I didn't say it. Um, so one last question for you, Mrs. Riegler. Can you reconnect once you have already disconnected? Once you've got into challenges and you've drifted apart, 
Entropy has taken a toll. Can that be reinvigorated? And is reconnection still possible? Of course, absolutely, yes. Judaism is the religion of tshuva, right? Because I'll say that tshuva was created before the first human beings were created. So you, so tshuva is always possible. If, you, if, you, if you've never gone out on daylight in your life, you can start now. And especially for, for people, you know, later in life. Now you have more time. You probably have more money to go out to a nice restaurant for dinner. And so uh, you can always change behavior patterns if you're willing to admit the possibility that change is possible. But what kind of a Jew doesn't admit the possibility that the change is possible. I mean, like, did you ever hear of Yom Kippur? Right, absolutely. Mrs. Riegler, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been great to have our ability to focus on midlife and later. And it's great that you have Shomuk's experience in that personal and teaching others. So really appreciate all of your insights. And I guess a lot of this can also apply even before those time periods. Certainly the three sins are applicable throughout a marriage. And going out on date night and making your marriage a priority in your life. I want to invite all of the women listening who are married to, um, you can go on my website, sarahrigler.com, and you'll see about uh, my weekly marriage webinar. It's so great because these are women who are working on themselves through their marriage. Thank you so much for joining us. Really a pleasure. Very, very happy to be here with you. Shalom Aleichem, this is Ari Wasserman taking the microphone back for our wrap-up, our takeaways and lessons learned. And I'd like to say as an initial item that I learned a tremendous amount from our guests today. And I want to thank them for providing such important information, advice, and giving over their wisdom that they have learned over literally decades dealing with the issues that we have talked about today. I'd like to start off with Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger. I asked Rabbi Neuberger on the way to the Levaya that we'll discuss shortly after this wrap-up. I asked him as follows as a Rav, you must spend so much time going to bar mitzvahs and weddings and the like. What is your standard for what you go to and what you don't go to? Then basically, Rabbi Neuberger said that he goes to anything that's not too far away, and his definition of not too far away is an hour or two. That's not too far away. And he says, as a poel, as somebody who is a rav of a shul, it is response, his responsibility, and it's also his pleasure to be going to the simchas of the congregants that he leads. So that was his response. I said, why are you going to a levaya? It's not a congregant of yours. And he said, it's a Talmud, the father of the nifter, was a Talmud of mine 35 years ago. And what I understood from that from Rabbi Neuberger is that once a Talmud, always a Talmud, and if, if he could supply even the smallest amount of Nechama to a Talmud of his, he was going to spend the time going and listening, absorbing the Levaya, and speaking with his Talmud there afterward, which is what he did. So I, I learned a tremendous amount from the mysterious nefesh of Rabbi Neuberger on behalf of his Talmudim and uh, so many other people that he comes in contact with. Rabbi Neuberger taught us something that was very interesting. Uh, point number one is the mitzvah of Ona that a husband has to a wife includes not only the act of Ona, but also the husband making sure that his wife is happy, that she's comfortable in her life. And it also includes building a strong relationship together. So that is an expansive and very interesting view of Ona. Also, advice 
In advance of marriage, I asked him, what do you tell to those who are considering marriage and those who are newlyweds? And he said two important points. Number one, work on your midos. Work on your midos. Be a selfless person. The enjoyment of marriage is being a giver. And number two, you need to understand that men and women are different. And that is a source of strength. We need to value the differences. On that first point of working on your midos and being committed to the marriage and being motivated. So in fact, this is a vort in Parshas Vayakel. The Pasuk says as follows, Kol nediv livo yevi echa es trumas Hashem. Everyone is motivated, talking about giving of the donations. So the Pasuk says anyone who is motivated, who has the desire to give, give, give the donation. In fact, Tzfasemis looks at the word yevi echa to bring bring it, Yavi Osa, and he says something more expansive. He says it's not only whoever desires to give something physical, a gift, give the gift. Not only that, but anyone who has Nidivus, call Nidiv Livo, bring the motivation, bring the desire together with what you are giving as a physical gift, as a donation to the Mishkan. Bring not only the gift, but your passion, your desire, your motivation. And the same we would apply with somebody who is committed to a marriage, working on your meetings, giving of your yourself. It's not only a matter of giving financial support, but give of yourself, of your desire, of your midos, of your motivation to your spouse. So such a nice word applied. Another thing that uh, Rabbi Neuberger said is avoid the distractions of life. There are so many. Avoid those distractions because they get us misfocused on the less important things of life. Oftentimes, our marriages are casualties when we get distracted to less important things. Such an important lesson. Next came Mrs. Khani Jaravel, and we discussed disconnection. Disconnection could reflect real concerns in a relationship, or alternatively, it could simply reflect the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of a marriage. So you have to delve into understand what's causing a disconnection. Next point, what are the causes? So she flagged two, there are others as well. She flagged two big ones, comparison. If you're comparing your relationship to others, including via social media, that could really have a negative impact on one's connection to one's own spouse. And also, it may be our own baggage. It may be our baggage and not that of the spouse that is causing a disconnect between the two. And point number three, very important point, start building connection between spouses from the very beginning of the marriage, but it is also critical to accept who and how your spouse is. Let's move on to Rabbi Shmuel Maybrook. Rabbi Maybrook said something fascinating. It relates very much to the introduction to the show. He said that there are two components, important components in the ideal marriage. It's not only about commitment. Commitment is something that we talked about. One of the motivations to have this show was that study that was done by couple and family psychology. 75% of people who got divorced said it was because of a lack of commitment. So Rabbi Maybrook said the ideal marriage is not only about commitment, Commitment is critical. You are important to me. That's Shalom Bias. But also he added on connection, which is the main theme of our topic today. That is the motivator that we talked about in bringing on this topic from that divorce attorney saying that so many people get divorced because they lack 
connection, which happens over time. And Rabbi Maybrook said we need commitment and connection. And he said connection means emotional connection. It means some being somebody who can be relied upon. Also, the focus of Rabbi Maybrook was on communication and being an active listener and also positive communication. He brought an amazing marshal of two people volleying, playing tennis. Do they view each other as competitors that they want to slam the ball to the other side? Or do they view themselves as part of a team? And as part of a team, they want to keep the volley, the communication going back and forth in a very positive manner for a long time. Just want to add on a little gloss to that. It's interesting that when playing tennis, there is a net between the two players. There's a net and the net can be viewed as a barrier. It can be viewed as an obstacle to the two. And they look at themselves as on opposite sides of that barrier, or it can be viewed as something that facilitates, that facilitates the ability to interact, to communicate, to go back and forth. And we can view it as despite barriers and despite differences between us, but we should still be able to get over those barriers in a very positive manner to keep the volley, that positive communication going back and forth between us. We heard from Mrs. Sarah Yochevet Riegler a number of very important points as well. Number one, you need to tend to your marriage like a garden or it entropies. What does entropy mean? It means gradual decline into disorder. What she was telling us is that you actively have to tend to your marriage, just like tending to a garden or else things go awry. She said that there are three main causes of disconnection. This is the second point. And those are the three sins, but we spell sin not with an S, but with a C. And that is criticism, correcting the other and controlling the other. So those are the three main causes of disconnection. The three sins. She added on a third point. Midlife, it gets more complicated. Why? When the children go up, 90% of what the spouses deal with and spoke about is now gone. And you need to fill that void and it gets more complicated. Point number four, with the golden age, with health issues, health issues complicate things, hearing loss, memory loss, etc. And we need to deal with these issues in a proactive and positive way. And her major solution was date night. What's the big deal about date night? It's building the connection together. Again, we need to actively work on that marriage. I recall Rabbi Friend many, many years ago, he gave it to our term. I'm pretty sure he said in the name of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Chazal tell us that Zivugim are Kasha Kakriyas Yamsuf, just like Parnasa. Parnasa is Kasha Kakriyas Yamsuf, earning a living is as difficult as splitting of the sea and also very difficult to zivugi. Many explained as follows. When it comes to Parnassus, somebody can own a business. You have to stay on top of things because unless you stay on top of things and innovate and change based on the trends and the needs, your business, you could be around for 10, 20, 30 years, it will go out of business unless you're active on top of things, tending to things. And he said the same thing applies to marriage. And he pointed it out in the name of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky very astutely. It doesn't say that shiduchim are kasha kukriyas yamsu. That's sending out couples. That's also very hard. But zivugim is the word and zivugim means marriage is not only setting them up, but ongoing throughout a marriage. And he says, unless you tend to it, actively taking care of that marriage, a marriage can go 10, 20, 30 years, but like a business, unless you tend to it, it will go bankrupt. A marriage, a zivu, can go bankrupt as well. And that's why it's zivu game that are kasha 
Kikriyas Yamsuf. Just to add on one final point, the Gemara tells us that the Kruvim, these Parshas that we're reading now, the Kruvim on top of the Aron Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim were in the shape of a woman and a man. And Chazal teach us as follows that when Klal Yishah would come up to the base of Mikdash in Yushalayim for the Chagim, the Kohanim would roll back the curtain so everyone could see the intertwined Kruvim, the husband and wife, and the Kohanim would say together as follows, look, the Ahava, the love between you and a Kaddish Baruch Hu is like the love between a husband and a wife. That's the Gemara and Yuma. When Kalal Yisrael stop acting in accordance with the Ratzon Hashem, the Kruvim separated from one another and turned towards the wall. So too, we need to face each other as spouses. Focus, connect, and don't turn away. Don't turn away from doing the Ratzon of each other in a positive way because when that happens, we turn away, we lose that connection. We're no longer focused on that wife and that leads to unfortunate things. So Amir Tashem, we should have the bracha of building, building the relationships throughout the marriage, throughout midlife, throughout the golden age and staying focused and connected to one another. We're now going to have some reflections on the Leviah of Maoz Morel, the son of Eitan and Varda Morel, who live in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Nuberger, while I still have you, we were together yesterday at a Levaya, a Levaya for a Chayal who was Moser Nefesh for Klal Yisrael. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts, your insights on what we saw, what you heard, what I heard. I get your thoughts on what I heard as well, but uh, you know, I really wanted to get your thoughts because um, coming from Chutzlar, it's probably not that common to go to a Levaya of this nature. And um, if you could talk with us about the event itself, the amount of people that were there, and also about the individual and what they said, somebody who was in Gaza for an extensive amount of time, what was his focus, what was he doing about his life in general. I'd love to get your insights on that. I think it's probably the first Melchom uh, of Kal Yisrael that there are so many soldiers who are, who are learning during the Melchom. It's just a, a remarkable um, a remarkable feature of this Melchom. There's so many Svarm that are being published for the Chayalim. It's just uh, something that is Babylon Iran and which makes in our community even more connected with all the terrible losses. When we were at the Levi yesterday, so I was there I became aware of it, the Levi because the father of the of the Chayal, the Kurdish that we lost, so he was a Talmud in one of my first shirm that I gave as a Talmud, he was a phenomenal Talmud. When they described the Chayal so so much of that was describing the this Talmud, Eitan the father. He was a, he was a sholem at a very young age. It's a fantastic Talmud. He learned Bahasmada. He learned with Havana. He loved learning. He was always a very sensitive and sweet and upbeat person. So that uh, you know, when a when a child suffers, when a Talmud suffers, it's um, very very humbling and the source of of, of tsar and of itself and. We saw how Cloud Yisrael, anybody with any kind of connection to the to this Torah wanted to be there. And that's the uh, one of the Midos which is going to ultimately help us out of this great Torah. We mentioned yesterday that Moshe Rabbeinu, one of his first uh, missions was Nasan Ve'enei Ve'libay, that he, he forced himself to be part of the pain of Cloud Yisrael. One goes to a Levaya and you see the people streaming there. 
they uh, they were there because Nasan and Levi they wanted to just be part of the Tsar, the Tsar of the people. I mentioned yesterday that I heard I don't know who this is, but Margolin, who pointed out that when it says Vayeda Kajvarhu made himself aware of Yachal the pain of Kali Yisrael, Rashi used a very similar phrase. Also Nasan Ainai the Tsar and Yisrael. So our commitment, our active involvement to be no say ba'ol, to try to to inject ourselves into the tsar of the people, even if there is, we not, can't begin to bring the chum or even chizuk, just wanted to be part of the tsar. And then as I was thinking when I was there, it struck me that Har Herzl is, a, is one of the holy mountains of Gal Yisrael. This the mountain set aside for Gedosha. David Melech said, Yerushalayim Harim Sevivla. On one side is Harazesim. There are many Kedoshim and Harazesim. And there are Kedoshim and Harazesim. Vashem Sevivla Harim. There's Kedosh Baruch who's watching over. And Vashem Harim Sevivla Harim now is with a certain Hastara, but we don't understand. Do not understand. And we're waiting for, to be able to see Kedosh Baruch who's around the Harim Yerushalayim. There's greater, greater access, with greater openness. And then, you took me to the the new rows. There are the fresh rows of graves, yeah, row after row. That's hard. I mean, I was thinking about that. So the what came to mind is the kino we say on uh, on Tisha B'av, that it was the the blood of Zachariah Cohen Godel stayed, and new Zradon kept on shechting Kuna to try to to quiet the blood of of Zachariah. So we were responsible for. The death of a Koyin and Novi, Yom Kippur, Shabbos, Mesa Mikdash. We didn't keep our obligations to cold over Kaddish. And we were in denial. Because when Wizraddin came and said, what's this blood? We said, we're bringing Korbanis. We're doing a lot of good things. We are. But apparently we have not kept the responsibility to cold over Kaddish of Israel. And then Wizraddin, Shafted Pirchei Kahuna. That's what, that's those, those fresh graves. And ultimately, we didn't, uh, it doesn't say in the Kina, in the Medrash, that we figured things out. And said so that we were able to just appeal through our That's when we think about those fresh rows, we have to say the Rebbe And the Uzzadun said, it isn't worth it. It isn't worth avenging the blood of Zechaiset and Zechariah. Right. Right, those fresh, fresh rows all since October 7th, row after row of Chayolim that have been killed. I just want to add on a reflection that I had, that this is a boy that had a difficulty learning. A number of people said it. It did not come natural to him, learning of Torah. He was athletic, and that's why he was able to become a Tzanchan, which is a paratrooper. But the learning in yeshiva was very difficult for him, and... His Rebbe said that he used to get into the base Medrash early before anyone else, and he'd read a line in the Gemara, and he'd say, Lo hevanti, I didn't get it. And he'd read it again. And he said, Lo hevanti, and he'd read it again, and again, and again, and over, and over, and over. And the next day again, even when he got it, over and over and over, because he would have forgotten it otherwise, because he didn't have a great memory for learning. And his Rebbe told him, I don't know how you're so motivated to stay in yeshiva at all, because if I had these challenges, I would have been out of here. And that boy, his hasmada in yeshiva, was an inspiration to everyone. And to me, that was such a lesson 
especially people that don't have that difficulty. We need that hasmada. What a message. Don't read it once and I'm on to the next thing. Over and over. And we don't, we, when we don't understand something, don't go on. Learn it again and again and again. So that, that was really something that, that touched me. His commander in the army said that he saw him sitting there in Gaza learning Mesilas Yesharim. How many people in Gaza, in the midst of a war, are sitting with the Mesilas Yesharim and then head off to battle? And to be working on his Midos and head off to battle, that duality in one person was so powerful. And that was reflected in his name, which was talked about Ma'oz, strength. And another story that was told that he had gotten ready, he heard about, uh, and he was called up on October 7th, he headed straight home. Within in eight minutes, he was packed and out the door, heading down to, to Gaza to help out Klali. So eight minutes. He's not packing a lot for himself, but what did he pack? He took Svarim with him. You can't take a lot of Svarim with you because you're carrying everything in your backpack. He's taking a base medrash with him. This is somebody who had a difficulty understanding what he learned, but he worked. And he worked, and he worked. And the army sent back a package of some of the svarim that he wasn't able to take in with him, including the Nefesh HaChaim. Nefesh HaChaim is a hard safer to understand, and he's taking it with him to Aza, and also the Chovas HaTalmidim, and other svarim as well. And it struck me that this person who, he knew that he couldn't sit all day, it would be too difficult. So he said, I can't continue in yeshiva. But he took the yeshiva with him, and he took his learning with him. And wherever he was, he had a safer. Another story that, that his father said, his mother talked about, is that he learned Shas Mishnayis. It's a person who had very difficult time learning. And he did a little a day, a Mishnah, a Perik a day, and he didn't even tell his father. His father didn't even know until he finished Shas. And his son said, Maoz told his father, Eitan, Eitan, I finished Shas. And his father said, we need to make a, we need to see him. We need to see him for some, unbelievable. Just, he didn't even talk about his accomplishments, which were difficult for him, but he continued and he progressed little by little but that little by little adds up to finishing a shas which is an amazing thing Hashem Yikom Damav and um, somebody like that they go straight to Olam Abba. unbelievable thank you so much